Good morning, everybody. Moments before the first uh, service began, I had a gentleman in the congregation come up and said, I heard you're preaching today. I said, indeed. He said, I know what you should preach about. I said, what's that? He said, about 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't know if he's in here or not. If he is, I am not going to be preaching for 20 minutes. Happy Father's Day to all of you who have been walking in as uh, the service has begun. Uh, Today we not only celebrate fathers, but today is a special day uh, for me. Today, Kelsey and I are celebrating our one-year anniversary. Thank you. The other day, I tried to be very sweet, and I was trying to be very kind to her, and I look at her and said, "Hun, I can't believe that. A year has already flown by, and she said, I know it, it's felt like 10. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or not, but we're going to take it as, as a good thing. But good morning again, everybody, and I want to begin by saying as we continue our series of rethinking your favorite Bible verses, I want to remind you of the two goals that Pastor Nick gave us when we started this series, that one, we want to be reminded and encouraged by these verses that by God's word we come to a deeper understanding of not only who he is, but what he has done. And two, to offer gentle correction and proper application to these texts as we study in order to see the greater meaning. And I can't stress enough that through this series we really want to see both of these goals present each and every week as we study together. But let me share a little secret about what this series looks like. Not every verse we will be studying is taken completely out of context. Not all of our planned verses are taken even slightly out of context. The issue we find isn't in the context of the verse as much as it is in the application. Our intent may be right when we're quoting these certain verses, but our application is not. This is often the case for platitudes. If many of you are familiar with them, if not, here's the definition. A platitude is a remark or a statement that has been used so often that it is no longer interesting or thoughtful. Platitudes are all around us. They are so common, we don't even realize that we use them. So let me give you a short list here of common platitudes. The first one, waste not, want not. Most of us have probably heard this uh, throughout most of our lives, either from parents, grandparents, waste not, want not, when you're sitting at the kitchen table. The next one, nice guys finish last. Part of me is just not willing to accept that as a fair statement. Go with the flow is just a nicer way of peer pressuring somebody into doing something. Work smarter and not harder. Thanks for the advice. I didn't think of that as I started this new project. It happened for a reason. One of the worst things you could say to somebody if you're counseling them or they're going through through grief. Or one of my personal favorites, when you've lost somebody and someone says, oh, it was the last place you looked. Well, no kidding, it's the last place you looked. I've never lost anything, found it a couple minutes later and said, I'm just going to keep looking for this because I need to find it. No, last place. But you, you get the idea. We've all heard each of these before. As a matter of fact, we've heard them so many times that they just aren't encouraging for us. They aren't inspiring. They don't stir a response from us. They are flat. They are dull. And they're just not interesting. The problem with platitudes is that because they are said so often, they've lost their meaning. 
they've been simplified to nothing more than just lip service. We may say them with our lips, but we don't truly mean them with our hearts or with our minds. The verse we're going to study today has become a popular Christian platitude. We don't necessarily take it entirely out of context. We may be well-meaning behind saying it, but because it's used so often, it's lost meaning. The verse is in most of our homes posted above our doors. It's hanging from placards at our entryways. This verse says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But what does this look like? Surely it means more than just nailing that verse above our doors or painting it on our walls. What does it mean to truly serve the Lord? Have we simplified our service to God to just a platitude or a lip service? The thing is, we we often say this verse, but nothing flows from it. Our intent may be genuine, but our application is missing. We say one thing, but we act another. Our hearts are divided. Do we declare this verse with our lips, but our hearts speak otherwise? Do we say we serve the Lord, but our hearts are serving other things? Our text today is going to teach that God requires an undivided heart. God requires an undivided heart to serve him. Platitudes and lip service will not suffice. Only an undivided heart can serve God. Before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we come to you recognizing your goodness and your mercy. Father, we acknowledge our sin and our rebellion. We thank you for calling us out. We thank you for making us a people that are called out, that gather together, that encourage each other, and we grow together under your word. And Father, today as we begin to study your word, we pray that your spirit does the work of illumination, that your spirit opens our eyes to your word so that we can see how to appropriately apply your word in its correct context into our lives. Father, let us grow in the knowledge of serving you with undivided hearts. Let us grow together as a people yearning for your work of sanctification. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 14. Joshua 24. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sights, and preserved us all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. 
Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, Well, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, the stone shall be a witness against us for it was heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. It's the word of the Lord. This passage begins with two very simple words. Now, therefore. These two words should be shining like flashing caution lights to us. They are standing out. They are are screaming to us that we cannot proceed. We cannot go forward without first looking back. In other words, to understand what is coming, we first must know what has already happened. The entire book of Joshua is about conquest. How not only God delivered his people from Egypt and led them into the promised land, but chapter after chapter we find battles everywhere, most famously the battle of Jericho where the walls came tumbling down. We read of kings that are being defeated, and we see all of the land allotments that are given to the various tribes of Israel. Joshua is about conquest, which culminates in the gathering of Israel in chapter 24. It's here in chapter 24 we find Joshua gathering all the people of Israel to renew their covenant with God by reminding them of their history. It was in this covenant originally ratified in Exodus 24, that Israel would worship God alone and obey his commands alone. And Joshua reminds them of their history, but it's not really their history, right? It's not really their history. Well, of course not. It's much like the history of Old North Church. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about those of you who have been around for decades, but it's about God's history and what God has done. It's the story of God's work and his work alone. So Joshua begins to recite from God's history for Israel, encouraging them to remember Abraham and how God had called him out, made his offspring many. How he said, remember Moses and Aaron and how he plagued Egypt and brought them out. How God parted the Red Sea, how he swallowed up the Egyptians, how he brought them out of the wilderness and gave them land, time and time again, defeating the enemies before them. God gave them land which they did not build, and God gave them vineyards and orchards they did not plant. If we look at that list and we look at all of the verbs that are attributed to the the provision and success of Israel, in all of these verses we see one thing, that God is at the center of them all. Line after line we see phrases like, God took, God made, God sent, 
God plagued, God did, God brought out, God gave, God destroyed, God delivered, and on and on and on. What Joshua is saying, remember Abraham, remember Isaac and Jacob, remember Moses, remember the plagues, remember the exodus, remember the parting sea, remember the Jordan River, remember Jericho and the walls, remember the land in which you dwell now comfortably. Because God has brought you here. Now, therefore, because of what God has done, here is the response. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Joshua doesn't just leave Israel with celebrating and reveling in their history, but he challenges them as they're moving forward. If God is God and he has done all that I have just said, then you need to respond by fearing him and serving him. An undivided heart fears God. The first of the two responses, Joshua says, is to fear God. Well, this this type of fear is not the paralyzing fear that we get from utter horror, but it's the type of fear that leads to reverence and awe. This fear is the proper attitude of a redeemed sinner before a holy and righteous God. This fear is a humble submission that recognizes that he is God and we are not. This fear submits every area of our lives under the complete and total authority of God. Proverbs 1.7 says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And if this is true, as we acknowledge this, then it's in our understanding of fear and reverence that the foundation of our lives flow from. Joshua gave the history of what God had done for Israel, and their response was to fall in fear and reverence of God. This fear is what fuels our reverence and our worship. We see this image best when we look at the story of Isaiah's commission in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah stands in the throne room of God and he is struck with utter fear because of the glory, majesty, and greatness of God. Remember God's robes filled the room. His voice boomed like thunder. Isaiah falls to his face as someone who recognizes his sinfulness before a great and mighty God. Isaiah submitted to the authority of God in fear and reverence. I can remember from a very young age developing a fear that leads to reverence and awe for my dad. All my mom had to say was a certain six-word sentence that would evoke this fear for me. Six little words that would bring me to my knees. Wait until your father comes home. I knew if I had been goofing off, the last thing that I wanted to do was to upset my dad because I feared him in reverence and awe. And I remember one of the first instances that this really came about, that this really developed in my life. I may have been about eight or nine years old, and my dad was taking uh, myself, some friends, and some of my friend's parents. We were going trick-or-treating in our neighborhood. I put on my best pirate outfit because I usually wore that about every other year outside of being a G.I. Joe, and we took off. We get a couple houses down, and I'm just so excited to be with all my friends. I'm so excited to be getting candy that I'm starting to act a little goofy, and I'm getting a little too excited. And my dad looked at me, and he said, Nathan, 
It's time to settle down. You're, you're getting a little goofy, getting a little out of control. Says, yes, Father. We get a couple more houses down. I start running around again. I'm getting really excited. I'm getting amped up. We're getting candy. I'm eating candy as we're going. And my dad says, Nathan, this is the second time. You need to settle down. You, you, you need to calm down. You're a little, little aggressive. So okay. We barely get another two or three houses down. I'm acting crazy again. My dad grabs my arm and he looks at me. He says, son, this is the third time I am telling you that you need to calm down. If you don't calm down, we are going home. Well, obviously an eight or nine-year-old could not let their father speak to them like that in front of all their friends. So I, I pull away from my father. I get near all of my friends and we're all standing there. And I look at my dad and I say, what are you going to do about it, Baldy? And I know what some of you are thinking. I had more hair at that point when I made that reference. But I look in my father's eyes and I knew trick-or-treating was done at that point. He grabbed me. He starts taking me home. And if, if you ever hear my mom tell a story, it's hilarious because she says, it looks like your dad was carrying a lifeless body because you just had gone completely limp. And he's carrying you along. He's dragging you down the road. And I knew, I knew the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, oh boy, I'm going to get beat so bad when I get home. My dad is going to blister my backside. We get in the house, my dad slams the front door shut, he puts me down on the couch and he gets in front of me and I went, oh, here it comes. He says, you will never disrespect me again. You will always submit to my authority. And he walked away. My dad didn't have to spank me then because I feared him in awe and reverence because not of just what he has done but who he was, I knew that my dad, in his unconditional love, he self-sacrificed to provide for our family. He worked really hard so that my mother, my brother, and I wouldn't go without. Dad's provision for my life was throughout my entire history from birth. I was incapable of doing anything for myself, and it was because of the total reliance upon him for sustenance that I was able to continue my life. I feared my father in utter awe and reverence, because of who he was and because of what he has done in my life, I placed my trust in his authority. Israel looked back on their history as a foundation for this fear and reverence. An undivided heart should fear God because the history is marked with God's mighty works. Because it's in God Israel finds their provision. It's in God that Israel finds their refuge and their redemption. And it's in God that Israel finds their spiritual sustenance. It's in God his people can place their total trust to fall under his complete authority. Fear fuels the submission and reverence and worship of God. Because God is mighty and God is majestic. But Joshua says, not only does Israel need to fear the Lord in humble submission and reverence, but to also serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. If fear and reverence are the inner response of an undivided heart, then service is the outward expression of that undivided heart. An undivided heart serves God. Joshua describes the service of, of an undivided heart as sincere and faithful. 
See, in the Old Testament, the idea of service could be better described as the act of worship to God. Sincere service to God was found in their worship. Well, sincere often uses the word to describe the unblemished sacrifices that are given to God. Remember our series in Malachi a couple months ago, speaking about the unblemished sacrifices that Israel brings. This is their best animals. This is the best thing that they have. The idea of unblemished can also be seen as a total and utter completeness. The complete best. And faithfulness is used often to describe one of God's characteristics, which denotes honesty, truthfulness, and accuracy. So these two words are being used together to describe true service to the Lord, sincerity and faithfulness. As we read these words from Joshua, sincerity and faithfulness are pointing to this one idea of complete integrity in service and in worship. If we think of those two words, we have to understand that the service Joshua is commanding is to be full of integrity and not hypocrisy. I once heard the story of a man who was being tailgated by a stressed out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly, the light turned yellow just in front of this gentleman. He did the right thing. He stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have accelerated and made it through the intersection and through the red light. Well, the tailgating woman now was furious and was honking her horn. She was screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection. She dropped her cell phone and she dropped her makeup. She was still in mid-rant when she heard a tap on her window and she looked up to see the face of a very serious police officer. The police officer ordered for her to get out of her car, ordered for her hands to be up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, the policeman approached the cell, opened the door, and she was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. And this is what he said. I'm very, very sorry for the mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, while you were giving hand gestures to the man in front of you, and you were cussing up a storm at him. I then noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, and the infamous chrome-plated Christian Jesus fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed that the car had been stolen. <laughs> Is this how service and integrity should look like? Do we claim service with our lips but allow all integrity to fall to the wayside? Our sincerity and our faithfulness, our integrity of worship and our service to God is to mere God, not just for our obedience to him, but because of those we encounter around us. Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our lives are to be a reflection of the goodness and character of God as we serve him and we worship him just as our integrity is on display to the world around us. An undivided heart fears God. An undivided heart serves with integrity. Fearing and serving 
the Lord. That sounds great, but how do we do that really with an undivided heart? It sounds easy to me that we could just offer up a lip service to the Lord and we say, Lord, I fear you and Lord, I serve you. But in the back of our minds we say, but I'm going to continue living my life exactly how I want. Joshua continues to teach, in order to fear and serve with an undivided heart, one must put away all false idols in worship. He says, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Joshua is commanding that in order for God's people to fear him with complete reverence, to serve and worship him in sincerity and faithfulness with all integrity, to have an undivided heart dedicated to the Lord, it's necessary, necessary to put away all false gods and idol worship and serve the Lord alone. This idea of, of putting away that he says, it's not just the, the packing away of something. It's not putting away like a child does when a parent says, go clean your room, where they you know, throw everything under the bed and they throw everything in the closet later to be revealed and admired again. No. This putting away that Joshua commands is littered through the entire Old Testament, through the New Testament, as the cleaving off of, the breaking off from, or even the best one yet, the putting to death of. It's not just enough to set aside false gods. Joshua is saying if you want to fear and serve the Lord because of what he has done and who he is, then you must get rid of the false gods completely. In order to put away all false worship, one must choose God above everything else. An undivided heart fears God. An undivided heart serves God. We also see how an undivided heart chooses God. Joshua begins chapter 24 with his inspirational speech about the work of God and what God has done throughout all of their history. And I can't help but read those verses and imagine this as one of the biggest pep talks in Israel's history. It's probably very similar to the tone and excitement that we're going to see from the Cavs coach in a couple of hours as the team's getting ready to play. He's going to say something like this. Look where we have been this season, team. Look where we have been in this last series. We are down three to one. No team in history has ever come back from a deficit like that and seen victory and success. But we have. And at that moment, I can see the rest of the team is just going to be so excited to play basketball. They're going to be cheering. They're going to be yelling. And they're going to be ready to play because they have seen their history. And they now see where... They can be heading. Well, this is the case for Israel. They had to have heard the tone in Joshua's voice. They had to sense the serious yet harsh nature of this historical account. They recalled all that had happened and they remembered the sweet taste of victory that the Lord had given them. And they were ready to serve the Lord. Some of them had to be shouting, Yes, let's do this. Let's serve the Lord together. Let's reaffirm this covenant. But Joshua says this, if it looks evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. 
Another way to say this would be, if it doesn't look good to you to serve God, choose this day whom you will serve. Wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Joshua just pumped them up and tells them, serve the Lord. And they start responding with, yes, let's serve the Lord. They go through the entire history and, and how God has done this. And they say, it looks evil in your eyes? It's not as if Israel's options were behind closed doors. They weren't on a cheesy game show where they saw two doors and Joshua says, choose which one you want and then serve. No. The door to God's providence was made clear to them. Wasn't God the one who did everything for them? From calling out Abraham, delivering Israel from Egypt, splitting the Red Sea, conquering Jericho, and giving them land they didn't even work in? Why would serving God look evil to people who know this? Because the yearning and desire to remain comfortable in our sin and serve other things is a harsh reality. Let's be honest with ourselves. We wouldn't serve sin. We wouldn't serve false gods. We wouldn't worship idols if they didn't bring us some type of comfort and security. What Joshua is saying, choose whom you will serve. If it's God, then serve God. If it's money, then serve money. If it's your job, then serve it. If it's TV and sports, then serve them. But choose because you can't serve both. And we see in the Gospel of Matthew this thought reaffirmed that man cannot serve two masters. It doesn't say shouldn't serve. It, it doesn't say may possibly be able to serve. It says man cannot serve two masters. Do we really want to go out on a limb and let God be God and submit ourselves entirely to his authority alone? Joshua calls Israel to put to a solemn and binding choice to have no other God and to put away all false idols. Joshua's call to choose is an inescapable choice. Joshua's call to choose is an inescapable choice. There was no third option for Israel. There's no third option for us. It's clear that in our lives, we either serve God or we serve our sin. An undivided heart cannot serve God and serve sin. An undivided heart cannot serve both God and false gods. One of my favorite quotes from Augustine is, is talking about this regard to an undivided heart and submitting to the Lord. He says, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all of my life, then he's not Lord at all. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all of my life, then he's not Lord at all. An undivided heart is single-minded that the choice to serve is reserved for one, the God who has already chosen, the God who has delivered, the God who has brought out, the God who has saved, and the God who has redeemed. All of this leads to Joshua's declaration in verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I can only imagine the hype that was coming through this speech. After going through all of what God has done in delivering and saving Israel, to commanding them to have an undivided heart, to find this declarative stance in opposition to everything else around, Joshua says, as for me, as for my house, as for my family, as for those who are dwelling within my walls, we will choose to serve the Lord 
and the Lord only. You can almost hear the cheering and the clapping that would have come from all of the people of Israel. Yes, us too. We're yelling in agreement. We want to serve the Lord. We want to obey. We want to obey the Lord with an undivided heart that fears and that serves him as the only true Lord. Israel actually even responds to Joshua in this manner by repeating almost everything he had just said to them. They say, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. What seems like a done deal, what seems like a closed book, all of God's people in agreement, reaffirming and reaffirming their covenant with the Lord to serve him, to obey him alone, you'd think Joshua would be ecstatic. His pep talk worked. His speech excited everybody. And they were responding exactly the way that that should happen. But Joshua tells them one of the most provocative lines in the Old Testament. He tells everyone, serve God. And they respond with, yes, let's serve the Lord. And then he says, well, guess here, well, You're not able to serve God. He is holy and he is jealous. He will not forgive your sins or your transgressions. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he'll do harm. You see that in God's holiness and jealousy, a half-hearted lip service is not what God wants. The lip service of a divided heart is not the seriousness and single-mindedness that is required. A quick platitude to declare service is not the answer that Joshua is looking for. He wants them to truly count the cost. Israel knew the right things to say, but time and time again, they proved that their hearts were yet still divided. Following God requires an undivided heart. You can't simply say you choose to serve the Lord, but your life does not reflect it. You can't say that you are servant of the Lord, but there are other idols that you fear, or there are other areas of your life that you serve most. And you can't stand on the fence between God and other things around you. You can't declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and still think it's okay to abandon your marriages. You can't claim service to the Lord and not put to death the idols that you worship of money and success. You can't claim service to God and find a different reason each and every week to not make it to the gathering of God's people to be encouraged and edified under the teaching of his word. An undivided heart is single-minded and serious in its service to God. The call to an undivided heart is a deep, deep, deep conviction. And it's only rooted in the knowledge that God is the only one who is worthy of worship. That God is the only one worthy of fear and service. And that the Lord, God, is the only one worthy to be chosen above everything else in our lives. It's a deep, deep conviction. Much like Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, when he's faced, uh, facing persecution for his beliefs, he says this, and he proclaims, I will not and I cannot recant. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me, God. It's an unwavering commitment to remaining undivided in our service to God. No outside pressure, no outside idols, 
will sway us. Joshua did not accept the lip service and platitudes of Israel because he knew that God did not want half-hearted commitment. Joshua says again, if you really want to serve the Lord, then quit being half in. Quit letting your divided heart choose sin. If it's the Lord you truly want to serve, then put away all of the foreign and false gods in your life and incline your hearts. Have an undivided heart to the Lord our God. Now fear God. Be in awe of God. And serve him with integrity. There's more to serving God than simple platitudes hanging above our doors. There's more to serving than just saying the right thing. But we need to really mean it. Israel finally gets their response right and it's full of sincerity and faithfulness. They say, we will serve the Lord our God and obey his voice. It's not enough to just say, I will serve God, but not submit to and obey his voice. Their hearts were inclined towards the Lord. So the question to ask is this. Are you serving God the same way that Israel did? With platitudes and with lip service? Are you professing that you're a believer and a follower of God and yet your life does not match that of whom one who fears and serves the Lord in all integrity and faithfulness? You see, we can't simply just declare our service to the Lord and not mean it with a completely undivided heart. It's not enough to say we will serve the Lord but not submit to his lordship and obey. If you're trying to serve and worship other idols, let me tell you the same thing that Joshua told the Israelites. Choose today whom you will serve. An undivided heart is what God desires from us, not half-hearted commitment, not a quick platitude or a mere lip service. Our service to the Lord cannot be split between idol worship and our sins. It's an undivided heart that we are capable to fear the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. We are able to serve with full sincerity and faithfulness and to worship him and him alone. So that in all truthfulness, we can declare, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we close today, we're going to sing a song that that sums up this, this very thing, this choice to serve God with an undivided heart. Let's not just declare this as we sing with our mouths, but let's really mean it as a people who have undivided hearts that are inclined towards the Lord, undivided for the Lord, to worship him and him alone, to fear him and him alone, and to serve him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we recognize your goodness and your mercy. Father, we repent of our sinful inclinations to to worship false idols, to worship uh, all of the glittery vain things that come across our sights. Father, I pray that you incline our hearts to be undivided, to be focused, to be full of integrity, sincerity, and faithfulness as we fear you in reverence and awe because of who you are and what you've done, as we serve you as people united in integrity and as we worship you and you alone. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.